Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's July 21st. It's Thursday. We welcome you to today's show. We've got a good one in store coming up in about, uh, well, less than 10 minutes. We'll go to New York City. Uh, Jeff Dambicki is going to join us, an investigative climate journalist. He's got a story out in the Taiyi uh, talking about Alberta's war room, the energy war room, the Canadian Energy Center, as they call it. We haven't talked about the war room for a while, but uh, they've, they've, uh, they're going after journalists, essentially. That's the, that's the lead. That's the one-sentence synopsis, and Jeff's been keeping an eye on this, so he'll be joining us uh, from his home state now, uh, an original Alberta boy, but uh, he's been living out of uh, the U.S. for quite some time now. A new book coming out called The Petroleum Papers. We're going to talk to my pal Craig Spicer later in the show. He's just back from, uh, he was in Edinburgh, Johnny, for the last couple of days. The B.O. Yeah. The B.O., the British Open. Uh, An amazing, (laughs) is that what they call it? It doesn't sound as... Uh, yeah. Nice when you say it like that. Yeah, I always thought of that as body odor. I got a little <laughs> yeah. more, I got a little worried over here, but uh, I thought, is it coming? Is it hitting you all the way British over there? British Open. Yeah, just back from the British Open. Of course, he played a couple rounds himself, but he was there. I don't know if he was volunteering or getting paid. We'll ask him that. Not that it really matters, but it, the guy was running ground screw for the British Open at the old course at St. Andrews, the Incredible. home of golf. And he sent us a whole bunch of photos. He's just like photos on his phone, but it's Tiger Woods walking by, Rory McIlroy, Cam Smith, like just amazing exposure to the greatest golfers in the world on, I don't know if he would say the greatest course in the world, probably the most special course in Whoa. the world. Isn't that Augusta? What would be the greatest course in the world? I'm sure uh, Mr. We'll Andrew ask him, Walker a lot of people, well, would have a list. Andrew Walker, host of the Hedge Pod. Yeah, uh, maybe. Uh, I think Cabot Cliffs in, in eastern Canada might be up on, on that list. Probably Pebble Beach down in California. On the mm-hmm. little S Spice when he joins us. Uh, Craig's literally just back. He got back hours ago. from. He's gotten up. I thought he was getting up early for us because I thought he's going to have jet lag. I said, thanks for getting up early for us. He goes, pal, I'm up at 4 o'clock for work. He's the superintendent out at Legends Golf and Country Club in Sherwood Park. So the guy's been up for like four hours by the time we even arrive at work. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that conversation. Plus, there's a ton going on. We're going to get to some items in the news. But before we do anything further, before we talk about anything other than our lead this morning, you're the BB today. See, the birthday boy. We're using all this. John Hicks. B.O. and B.B. today. Yeah, what do you think about it? So how are you feeling today? What is this? Uh, I'm 29 okay. for you, bud? Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. I don't know. As you get older, it's just, why can't I not get tired? Why am I always tired? No matter well, how much can't you sleep get rest, I have. Really? Yeah, why can't I get the is, battery full? Is, is this he, a hint to us that you need us to like ease up? On, you have big plans tonight? <laughs> tonight? No. Actually, I'm going to relax. The wife always makes, she's really awesome. She always makes me like a dish from my childhood. Oh. So tonight I picked seven layer lasagna. Ooh. What do you think of that? I think that's pretty fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big lasagna guy myself. I used to come home and, you know, Friday nights, mom would have a. Mom would have it ready to a rock. big lasagna with garlic bread on the table. So I'm looking, looking forward to it. Awesome. And uh, congratulations to you on. Seriously. Yeah, well, and to you as well. It was an exciting day yesterday as we launched uh, Seriously with Sapria and Ryan. 
Uh, of course, it's our new project. It's a weekly project. You can download it uh, every Wednesday, anywhere you get your podcast. We thank those of you that have already subscribed to it. You can check it out on YouTube as well. It's basically a half-hour show every Wednesday's appointment tuning. You can catch it every mm-hmm. Wednesday. Circle it on your calendar. We'll be talking about the biggest national news stories. We'll be talking about a lot of federal politics, interprovincial politics, stuff that matters to people. And Supriya does a really great job, as everybody knows, of cutting through the noise. <laughs> she's, and she's going to basically call BS on all the politicking, and we'll get awesome. right to the heart of the matter. Just tune in for Supriya, if nothing else. Yeah, exactly. And, and Well, no, I'm there to kind of just sort of you know keep it on the rails, but it's her <laughs> show. You can check it out at seriouslypod.com. And thanks to everybody that, uh, that checked it out yesterday. It's always great to get something new off the ground, to try out a new project. And we're really excited about it. People are talking about a ton of stuff, uh, a ton of items in the news. Of course, I wanted to let you know just on the national news front, pretty interesting. Rogers, Rogers Communications replacing its chief technology officer amid the fallout from the nationwide outage. You remember this. If you're a Rogers customer, you really remember this. So big corporate shakeup at Rogers. There's a lot of questions around Hockey Canada's equity fund. We touched on that yesterday. We're working on an interview for that. Obviously, if this show is six hours long, we could get to all of the stuff we need to talk about mm-hmm. every day. But a lot of people are, quite frankly, pissed off, very concerned about the fact that Hockey Canada kept a bit of a kitty. Uh, it kept it kept like a, a cash stash uh, to be able to deal with payments, settlements in circumstances where there are allegations around sexual abuse. And it's, of course, flared up because of uh, light being shone on a story out of 2018. You know it by now, no doubt. If you listen to this show, if you pay attention to the news cycle, and I think the Venn diagram of people that pay attention to the news cycle and listen to this show is basically a perfect circle. Mm. So there's a lot of questions around what's going on in Hockey Canada right now. It's shaking that organization to its core uh, because millions of Canadians have questions about hockey's governing body in Canada And then speaking about hockey, how can you ignore the allegations right now swirling around Edmonton Oilers owner Daryl Cates, who's been named in a lawsuit? Now, to be clear, the lawsuit is not targeting Daryl Cates, but a newly filed civil suit in the U.S. claims that the billionaire owner of the Edmonton Oilers paid a teen ballet dancer, allegedly 17 years old at the time, $75,000 in exchange for her sexual favors. Now, the Cates team, by way of his legal representation, denies the allegations. They say that the $75,000 they sent to this teen was for a film project (laughs) that she was working on. This isn't the first time that he's faced accusations like this. And I checked it out on IMDb. It's like been in uh, production. It's been been in production for like... (laughs) Like five years. Like, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. So we don't know. We don't know the truth about what happened uh, as part of this civil suit. And again, it's not Kate's being sued. Excuse me one sec. Sometimes when you're in broadcasting, you're fighting a tickle in your throat. You're just fighting a cough for like three three minutes. And then you got to just get it out. The texts around this are pretty bad. So this is a, a, a sexual abuse lawsuit that was launched last year by seven aspiring ballerinas well they are ballerinas they're aspiring professional ballerinas Mm -hmm. uh, against a dance teacher by the name of mitchell taylor button and his wife dusty Uh, they were once principal members of the boston ballet and so as this lawsuit this civil suit has played out there's been disclosure and there's been evidence entered and among the exhibits that are attached to a recent filing some unsubstantiated or unproven allegations let me say about kate's 
and then Humphreys and her family. You can read all the story. The CBC's done a good job reporting it. A lot of the major news outlets in Canada and the U.S. are reporting this. It's obviously a sensational story. But screenshots of text messages allegedly exchanged between this dancer, who was 17 at the time, and Daryl Cates, as well as an iPhone contact under the billionaire's name listing a number with a 780 area code, which is our neck of the woods, right around Edmonton. And so these texts show an exchange where, you know, he's asking her, and I'll say allegedly, it's not been proven in court, but Daryl basically says, if if we send you funds, if my guys send you funds, will you spend it on or keep it for yourself? She says, of course I would keep it for myself. I listened to all the advice you gave me the last time, and I don't take anything for granted. He says, and just between us, even though you are wise beyond your years, um, at the time that these were allegedly exchanged, he was 52 years old, she was 17. Mm Mm-hmm. He says, given our respective ages, it would be taken the wrong way. So these texts don't sound like you're giving someone money for a project or a movie. Like, why would you need to keep seed money for a project to yourself? You know what I mean? So, I mean, there's a lot of questions around this. And and, and for people that don't know, Daryl Cates has sort of that. Bruce Wayne type vibe in Edmonton. He's 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 he's, he's, a, he's a relative unknown. He's Batman. He, he's not. Well, he's not. He's not the owner that that is that is always at the events. He's not the owner that's meeting with the media, granting a ton of interviews, yeah. talking to the fans on the concourse. You know, shaking hands down at you know the Churchill Square outside City Hall all the time. He's, not at he's all. reclusive. He keeps to himself, um, as is the case with many billionaires i'm sure oftentimes surrounded by security the movements are secretive the whereabouts are unknown he has properties around the world he's elusive a a couple years ago he 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 purchased a home down in california i mean daryl cates has been wanting to get into the movie business and has been getting into the movie business for the last at least 10 years Mm -hmm. uh and and purchased a a a california mansion a southern california home for 150 million dollars a couple years ago at that time at least i don't know still it was the most expensive real estate, residential real estate purchase in California's history. Uh, so the guy's not even really lived in Edmonton. He has a, a palatial home by the Laurier Dog Park in Edmonton. If you know, he had lived in the penthouse at the Fairmont uh, in Vancouver, the Fairmont Pacific Rim. And so he's been all over the place. And, uh, and people have had a lot of questions about him. I've seen a lot of criticism online, which I want to address and touch on very quickly. People saying if Edmonton media knew about this story and sat on it, you know, reporters should be getting fired. Journalists should be getting fired if they've been protecting the Oilers owner on this story. Nobody knows if it's true, but there is an interesting vibe in Edmonton where Daryl Cates, the owner of the Oilers, the Oilers are the biggest brand in the city, without a doubt, mm-hmm. has gotten a pass on a lot of stuff. There have been a lot of questions that have swirled around the Oilers owner that have not been fulsomely reported in the city of Edmonton, most particularly by sports journalists. And I think that that's fair criticism. Mm -hmm. I think people are afraid of losing access to the team, quite frankly. And so this is a story that we're paying attention to. We're following it. It's obviously troubling if it's true. You can send us your thoughts on this to talk at ryanjesperson.com. The hockey world's had a lot of stories swirling around as of late. Things are coming to light. nothing to do with hockey. In general, I just don't like an over 50-year-old man texting a 17-year-old. It just it just doesn't seem, you know, mm. even if it's business related, I don't know. It just, you know, just doesn't seem. But if you, you know, look at the last year. That stuff year, should be in emails or like, you know, in meetings, not, you know, over text. So. Got it. You're saying if it's legit and if it's filmed. Yeah, it's just, it gives me a weird weird vibe yeah you're probably not alone on that john to say the least 
But if you think of everything that went on with the Chicago Blackhawks organization, mm-hmm. right, uh, the, the disclosure that what people came to understand to, about a, a brave former Blackhawks prospect that was exposed to, to sexual assault um, and to sexual harassment as, as part of his interaction with a team's video coach at the time. You remember the, the team's owner, uh, Wurtz, saying basically that he wished people would get over it and he wished people would stop talking about it until his son roared into the rescue and said, no, 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 we do care about it. We do, we do. And people have asked questions about hockey culture. And I know that some of you hardcore hockey fans are going to roll your eyes and say, Jess, fuck off with all this, Jesperson, all the hockey, all the toxic, all the hockey culture. Hey, man, nobody loves hockey more than me. Uh, but you can't ignore this stuff. And love. then there have been positive stories, too. What about Luke Prokop, right? Mm-hmm. The, the prospect for the Nashville Predators that came out as gay just a short time ago. Mm-hmm. I, I saw an interview with him just a short while ago. This guy is a big, strapping, promising young prospect, right? You'd look at him and you'd say, that guy's got swagger. That guy's got confidence. Good yeah. for him to come out. And a proud gay man. To but we haven't. I mean, I can't wrap my mind around the courage it would have taken for him to, to come forward first. and do that as a young player. I saw an interview with him just last week. He said he said he's playing. He says he feels like the weight that lifted off his shoulders. He said he's playing the best hockey he's ever played in his life mm-hmm. since he's come out publicly, which is great. There's a lot to talk about in the hockey world that has nothing to do with hockey, mm-hmm. and we'll keep those conversations going as well. We're going to talk to Jeff Dambicki in just one quick second. First, before we get there, I want to talk to you about Apex Automation. You can find them online at apexautomation.ca. This is a call out to the most talented engineers in Canada. Apex wants you to come work for them. If you're feeling right now in your current role, you're bored stiff, you're doing work you don't care about, it's uninspired, your clients are lame, and your employer doesn't appreciate you, Maybe it's time to make a move. You can check out the careers link at apexautomation.ca and join the team that's providing intuitive, fully autonomous solutions to industry. They're giving people back their time. You can check out the partners, the groups that they're working with. Check out the reviews of what clients and employees have to say about working there. Flexible hours, professional development opportunities. It's all part of the employment experience at Apex Automation. Our friends at Friesen Brothers want to remind you whether you're making your family classic seven-layer lasagna or something else, they've got all the ingredients you're going to need, whether it's fresh Alberta pork, chicken, turkey, beef, or plant-based protein options. They've got your vegan cheese, your regular cheese, and all the fresh produce from as close to the grocery stores as possible. We're talking local, local, local. It's Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. And our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you, if you have a friend celebrating a birthday today and you want to get them something special, but at the last minute you remember (laughs) they don't consume dairy, they have dairy-free dilly bars. John, on your way out from work today, I invite you to stop by the freezer from the door. Not only can you double dilly, you can dilly times six with your dairy-free dilly bars waiting for you. Happy birthday, pal. We love you. Thank you, sir. You can pick up your dairy-free dilly bars or the OG originals plus blizzards, signature stackers, buster bars, ice cream cakes, treats of pizzas, and more at the Dairy Queens of Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. A birthday-themed opening ad montage. Oh, buddy, I've been dreaming that up all night, just (laughs) waiting to deliver it. All right, let's get serious. Jeff Dambicki has been working as an investigative climate change journalist for years, originally from our home province of Alberta, now based in beautiful New York City. He has a new book coming out called The Petroleum Papers. It's uh, hitting shelves in September. 
He's the author of a new investigative piece at the Taiyi.ca. Alberta's Energy War Room hires a new fighter. Jeff Dambicki joining us live this morning. It's nice to see you again. Thanks for making time for us. A good morning to you. Yeah, thanks me. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, how are things going in New York these days? It's uh, what a place to be a journalist. Yeah, well, I'm mostly just thinking about the heat wave that we're in right now. It's supposed to get up to 35 degrees today. You know, I'm I'm from Alberta, so I'm not used to that type of heat. It's wild. I mean, we're taking a look at, at, at what they're experiencing in Europe as well. And, and they're showing, you know, the outdoor patios at restaurants in London, absolutely empty. Everybody trying to take a refuge inside. It's obviously of great concern to people that, that, that lack housing. It's uh, of great concern to seniors and the medically vulnerable. What are you seeing in New York? Is everybody just trying to find air conditioning? How are you managing? Well, we got all the air conditioners and fans just cranked to the max in our place. And I think people out here are like a little bit more used to the, the heat and all the crazy humidity that comes up with it. But I, I was just thinking how, you know, I was like back in Edmonton for the Christmas holidays and I think it went down to like minus 35 or minus 37 or something and now it's plus 35 here so that's like a 70 degree shift in temperature it's kind of amazing like the swings in temperature that people experience yeah no kidding hey uh, Jeff when you and I know that some folks will take issue with this uh, we, we like to be purveyors of of real talk and just chat things out uh we acknowledge that there have been ebbs and flows and trends in climate for as long as it's been recorded and 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 i suppose geological evidence of other climate trends or or happenings that that scientists have been able to to sort out and better understand the history of our planet but when you start to see things like major wildfires huge swings in climate global temperature trends rising by more than a degree at a time does that influence or impact what you do or the conviction to which you tell your stories as a as as a specific investigative climate change journalist i mean absolutely because when i was starting to write about this stuff like 10 or 12 years ago if if there was a particularly hot summer or an especially intense wildfire scientists would be pretty cautious about linking that to climate change they would say there's a you know there's a whole bunch of factors we can't really be sure and what one of the biggest shifts that i've seen over the last decade or so is that huge majority of scientists are now saying with certainty yes these extreme events that we're witnessing would not have happened without all of the greenhouse gases that we're releasing into the atmosphere. And so to me, that has changed climate change from a story that's, you know, going to happen many years off in the future to something that we're experiencing right now. And I mean, if if you're in London sweltering in in 40 degree heat, I mean, this this is climate change. And so I, I think that that just like ramps up the urgency for me of any sort of discussion about this topic. Hmm. Let's talk about this new piece that you've uh, put out just a couple of days ago. We appreciate you making time to talk to us about it. Uh, Counterpoint strategies hired by Alberta's Energy War Room, the Canadian Energy Center, as they prefer to be called. Uh, And uh, it's been their approach, I think, in in managing public perception of media that you really honed in on. Uh, Let's get into this. How did the story, first of all, wind up on your radar? I mean, as a, a climate change journalist, I've, I've paid a lot of attention to the, the Canadian Energy Centre, the Alberta War Room, whatever you want to call it, um, because one of 
the reasons it was set up was um, according to, to Premier Jason Kenney to combat lies and, and disinformation. And so as a, as a journalist, I always have to, to parse, you know, whether a fact is, is reliable or not. And so the setting up of the war room kind of posed a challenge for a lot of journalists, like would the war room itself um, be putting out stuff that was factually reliable? And we've, we've seen in many cases it hasn't. And in, in recent months and over, over the past year or so, the, the war room's been getting a lot more interested in expanding its reach into the United States, because obviously the U.S. is the most important customer for, for Alberta's oil and gas. And so I, I was taking a look through some of the foreign registration documents that any Canadian entity has to file when it wants to um, operate in the U.S. And I found this contract that the Canadian Energy Centre had signed with an organization called Counterpoint Strategies. And so I thought, okay, that's interesting. Like, who is, who is this Counterpoint group and why are they being hired with taxpayer money to provide strategic advice to the Canadian Energy Centre? And when I started looking more into Counterpoint, that's, that's when the story really got interesting to me. Okay, so, so take us into this. This is, a, this is an agency that promises that, quote, it can stop hostile coverage in its tracks. Uh, its stated mission to defend against so-called predatory journalists. Had you heard about the group before this or was this the first time? This is the first time. And so, you know, naturally, I, I, I Googled CounterPoint and I clicked through to its website and it, it is not holding back in its view of, of what journalism is. So the, the, basic, um, the basic idea, as explained on the CounterPoint website, is that journalists are, are basically working hand in hand with activists to create as much chaos and, and destruction towards governments and other corporate clients that CounterPoint represents. And it claims that the journalists are, are, are the vast majority of journalists are no longer, you know, objective truth tellers. They have ulterior motives. They have agendas. And CounterPoint promises its clients, which now includes the Canadian Energy Centre, that it will do everything it can to discredit these types of journalists, dismantle their print articles, or threaten legal action before a story is even published. And I mean, I've seen a lot of attacks on the media over the past few years, including, you know, being in, in the United States and witnessing Trump's um, war against the media. But this, this counterpoint website struck me as particularly extreme in its perspective. Well, Jeff, um, I mean, you know, I think that I don't need to explain to you the purpose of a website. Uh, if people visit the tie.ca, the tie wants them to be able to explore it as much as they can and read all of the journalism that happens there. If people go to ryanjesperson.com, I want them to be able to click through, see past episodes, subscribe to everything we do, learn a bit about me, sign up to our Patreon, buy our merch. If I go to counterpointstrategies.com right now and want to learn about the company, I click on the learn more link and it takes me to a, a password sign in page page. And I go, okay, well, hang on. It's maybe that's maybe that maybe I misunderstood how the website works. So I'll go to the about. I want to learn about them. I'll click on the about us. 
I'm hitting the password page again. It's protected. Well, I want to maybe go to their ethos. You've suggested I check that out. Guess what? I'm running into password protection again. Uh, is this because of you? I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to speak to anything that I don't have a hundred percent proof for. But it. I did find it kind of interesting that most of the the website went behind a password shortly after I reached out to Counterpoint for comment about this story. Luckily, I was able to to quickly find an archived version of the website on an internet archive called the Wayback Machine, which includes all the materials that I've been referring to. But you know, I I, I just thought this whole thing was was kind of ironic, given that Counterpoint is is so obsessed with bringing transparency and accountability to journalism. But then when an actual journalist myself reaches out to them to try to learn more about their operation. Then suddenly the whole site goes behind a password and the public can't even see what they're about anymore. Yeah, it does say something. And so, so what does this say to you bigger picture? I mean, uh, is it that, the, I mean, it, it, with regards to assessing the accomplishments or, or the effectiveness of this Canadian energy center, this war room, um, what is this telling you and how would you assess the past few years since the premier committed tens of millions of dollars to this entity? Well, I, I think there's a couple ways to look at it. And one, one of them, like people, people have been responding from across the political spectrum to my story. And one, one comment that I found kind of interesting was, was a person was saying, you know, the, the Canadian energy center, the war room, it, it's set up to be an expert in combating disinformation. I mean, that's how they portray themselves. They've been funded with tons and tons of taxpayer dollars. They, they should be the best, right? So why, why are they going down to this organization in New York and Washington, D.C., far from Alberta, and paying someone outside the country to do this work for them? They're supposed to be the best, right? And I think the point, the the other point, and and the thing that kind of drew me to this story is, I I don't think this contract with Counterpoint is is some sort of like coincidence or or some or some like brand new thing. I, I think it's an, an escalation of the hostility that the Canadian Energy Center has been showing to journalists pretty much ever since. It was created, and and I, I could give an example of that from last year. It was actually the reason I was I was on your show last year. Yeah, let's get into it for people that didn't see that interview, Jeff. Bring us up to speed. So the um, there there was of course this this Alberta inquiry into foreign sources of funding affecting the the Alberta oil and gas industry, and and that inquiry was also funded by by the Alberta government. Um, I think to the tune of like three and a half million dollars or something. And so one, one of the, the expert reports that was funded by that inquiry um, was by this researcher. She, she wrote, it, it was like over a hundred pages. It was incredibly long and dense and it contained sections suggesting that all climate change journalists, including my, myself, I'm assuming, um, are, are part of this um, globalist plot to, to overthrow capitalism, destroy Alberta, force people into terrible living conditions, and basically take us back to pre-industrial times. 
and we we talked about that because it it just it seemed so outrageous um and and that was being financed by by taxpayer money and and so i i think this this new contract with counterpoint represents an escalation of that um this 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 report that i was referring to from last year it was you know it was fairly amateur there were spelling mistakes in it um but this this new organization counterpoint like the, they're they're sort of seen as the pros if if you want to hit back against journalists and and they have over a decades of experience doing this sort of stuff for all sorts of high profile clients i'll let people know by the way if they want to check out our podcast archives you can do it on obviously apple google spotify you can find us on youtube that was january 26th of 2021 that you joined us, Jeff. I can't, that's been, it's been like a year and a half since you've been on the show, which is, that's my bad, pal. It's nice to see your face again. Um, but January 26, 2021, people can hear that interview and it's, it's evergreen content. It'll still hold up. I mean, people are still questioning uh, the reasoning, the justification, the wisdom behind the optics of that investigation into the foreign funded, uh, you know, sort of antagonism toward Alberta's oil industry. If you read some of the language, and again, people can read your full report at the tie.ca. If you're just joining us on the Mixler audio streaming app, we're talking to Jeff Dambicki, an international and investigative climate change journalist. You, you talk about some of the communications uh, that the CEO of this Counterpoint Strategies Group, James McCarthy, has pushed out over the years. I mean, created a short video a while ago, <laughs> which portrays journalists as, quote, ravenous predatory wolves who will literally tear your company apart. I hate when people say literally and don't know how to use the word, but I digress. <laughs> Journalists will literally tear your company apart, destroy its reputation, and cause its stock to plummet. Our current information landscape is a war zone. Journalists are enemy combatants, and unprepared companies are at risk. This is supercharged language. Yeah, and you know, I was talking about this with, with someone the other day, um, and they were kind of playing devil's advocate a bit. Um, and they're, they're like, okay, well, you know, may, maybe there are a few journalists who, who are like that. You know, may, maybe counterpoint is, is describing something that's real. It may not apply to all journalists, but it might apply to some. And what, what I said in response to that was, you know, this, this supercharged extreme language is not making room for any sort of nuance like that. It's essentially saying that that all journalists are are basically um, only interested in causing the most extreme reputational and financial damage, and and they're essentially doing it for self interested reasons. And that's that's a pretty pessimistic view of of what what journalism is. And also, I think it's sort of dangerous because. When you start to undermine people's confidence in objective evidence-based journalism, um, which is the vast majority of stuff produced every day, um, that that really starts to strike at the heart of democracy. And we, we don't even have to talk about that in hypotheticals anymore because we have a perfect case study south of the border from Canada. Um, there's there's a commission in Congress right now looking at the events of January 6th when a, a crazed mob literally tried to tear down. Yeah, nice Capitol job. Hill. Yeah, nice job. They did literally try to tear it down. <laughs> hey, does anybody care about that? 
like honestly, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to sound cynical and, and, and obviously millions of people care about it. But I just I've seen some reporting, you know, the streeters, people know that sort of the journalistic approach of a reporter will go out and just put a microphone in front of a bunch of people at like the National Mall or they'll, they'll go out mm-hmm. to a, a water park and, or the beach and they'll talk to people how they care about the price of cotton candy or something like that. But streeters are are good in the sense that it gives you the every person's perspective. And streeters are also sort of like picky choosy they're not indicative of the, they're not scientific polling obviously it, it's a way to add a little spice to a story but i was watching a report on on an american uh, network a, a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about this january 6th commission and they were talking about obviously how problematic it was for the united states i mean you look on home soil really it's like i mean for homegrown acts it's like you know i mean basically there's the mass shootings you know columbine and and sandy hook you've got the oklahoma city bombing and you've got january 6th right people are saying it's like pearl harbor of the next generation i mean it's a monumental day for all the wrong reasons in american history but this streeter all the people were saying i care about how i'm going to feed my family or i care about the price of gas or I care about how we're going to make our next payments with 8% inflation. Like one lady plain looked into the camera and said, I don't care about what happened on January 6th. What are you picking up on that? Well, I mean, I, I to a certain extent, I kind of sympathize with that because we're in an era where there's, there's just so much stuff being thrown at us on a daily basis. Like yeah. we're, we're still in this ongoing pandemic. Um, we're facing extreme weather, there's, there's shootings, there's all sorts of depressing stuff on the news. And now like, it's hard to even just afford basic stuff that you need to survive. Um, on the other hand, I, I think the, the failure of something like January 6th to really like penetrate people's minds and like grab their attention in the way it should, it's sort of in, indicative of, of what we've been discussing here about the Alberta government's hostility towards journalists. So in the, in the U.S., you know, we've we've seen years and years of of a very deliberate effort by politicians to hollow out people's trust in objective news media. And the the January 6th commission is is a is a great result of that. Um, we had, you know, first of all, the, the people who believed all the lies about the U.S. election being stolen and then storming the Capitol. And now we have all of this, like, really captivating, disturbing information coming out in the condition. It's being relayed to people through media that used to be extremely trusted, such as the, the New York Times and other outlets. And, and a lot of people are, are seeing that and thinking, Oh, you know that that's that's just more like self-interested, like partisan journalism. They say one thing, the right-wing people say another thing. You know who who can tell what's the truth anymore? And and I, I I don't want to overstate things, but like the Alberta government's hostility and attacks toward journalists is putting us towards that type of society. A hundred percent. That's why I'm bringing it up. I do think people have a point to make. Uh, about the the partisan nature of 24-hour cable news as an example i think if you yeah. if you click back and forth between fox and cnn both platforms are troubling and i'm not both citing this i'm just saying what's obvious it's obvious that there's a partisan angle on both of those networks presentation but the supercharged language and the attacks towards journalism the loss of trust of that fourth estate is troubling to be sure i find it interesting jeff and i won't i won't take too much of your time and uh i I know you've got to go but there's so much i want to ask you about we still have to talk about your book 
But I think it's interesting. You're talking about you're looking through these foreign registration documents. This is how Counterpoint Strategies winds up on your radar. Uh, Most people that have paid attention to this war room know that it was structured in a way that would prevent journalists and members of the public from making FOIP requests, from freedom of information requests, which, which of course, is laughable if you consider the context uh, or, uh, you know, the surrounding context, talking about transparency and honesty and openness and and insisting on the on on integrity driven journalism. And nobody I mean, they should have their books wide open for everybody to see. Uh, I remember my dad saying the same thing to a Greenpeace activist at our door 30 years ago. He said, open up your books. I'll make a donation. They said, well, you know, and that's what people want to see. Members are right. I love that. I've always loved my dad for that. But the people want to see the transparency. And it's pretty interesting. I mean, first of all, you found an in searching through these foreign registration documents. Maybe that was a crack in their wall. I don't know. But to me, that says a lot. I mean, the fact that there were three cabinet ministers sitting on the board of the war room and it was just, you know, but it's apparently arm's length. Of course, it's not the whole thing. I mean, the whole thing is questionable. Yeah, I mean, that that's the irony at the heart of all of this. The the war room wants to bring transparency and accountability to journalism, but it refuses to engage in that itself. And the only reason you know, journalists like myself are finding out about um, contracts with, with CounterPoint and, and other things in the U.S. is because if, if the Alberta government wants to operate south of the border, it has to file these documents. The, the U.S. Department of Justice doesn't care what the Canadian Energy Center's policy is around FOIP requests. Like, you just have to file that. Yeah. So that's 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 been a, a way into this, but it, you know it, it it does make me wonder like what what sort of stuff is the energy center engaging in on Alberta soil that we don't know about because it refuses to be held to the same level of accountability that it wants everyone else to be held to. Yeah, and I'm sure it's not lost on anybody that the Alberta government and the energy center, the war room is a foreign entity spreading propaganda in the United States. But I digress. I mean, that's just sort of too obvious of a problem staring them in the face. I'm not sure if you know the name Mark Doran. He's a a passionate uh, advocate uh, for the Polluter Pay Federation, the Alberta Liabilities Disclosure Project. Mark's doing a lot of lobby work and a lot of work behind the scenes trying to make sure that these orphan wells are getting cleaned up and that corporations are held to account with regards to their environmental liabilities. Uh, He has a question for you. He's watching right now. He's in our live chat. He's wondering if you know, Jeff, I mean, there was $30 million budgeted or allocated for the war room and then the the alberta government had acknowledged that they had really dialed that back and there were some problems around it of course there were the early debacles with the stolen logos and the seemingly incompetent management of, of the whole thing um but mark's wondering if you know how much money was actually spent uh, how much money the, the war room actually used in lobbying for alberta's energy sector do you know i i wouldn't be able to just like pull that stat right out of my head right now and i'm i'm not I'm not sure that I, I don't know if I've, I've seen something about that yeah. specifically, but that, I mean, that's that's a really interesting question. People should be asking that. Yeah, you know what I'm going to do is um, we like we real talk. We find really brings a lot of people together. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you saw this, John. Have you heard of the Sprawl, Jeff? It's an independent outlet out of Calgary. Jeremy Clausus is the publisher. They've just put out a story on Stephen Carter, the political strategist who is Calgary's mayor, Dr. Jody Gondek's campaign strategist. He was her chief of staff for about 100 days before he got fired. Anyway, this in-depth piece, this investigative piece in the Sprawl put out just a couple of days ago goes to show that when Jody Gondek, at the time a city councilor, appeared on Real Talk, 
I asked her if she would consider seeking Calgary's mayor's chair. She says, I don't know. I don't know. And I said to her, if you run, you'd win. The next guest on the show that morning, he was in our Zoom waiting room at the time, was campaign strategist Stephen Carter, who heard her say that. He reached out to her privately after they were on this show together, and she hired him on for what proved to be a successful mayoral campaign. My point just being that this show brings people together. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. After we go off the air, so to speak, I'm going to connect you with Mark by email, and you guys can talk. I think you could be a formidable force together. Uh, It's just breaking news as we're speaking, uh, Jeff, or at least we've learned just a bit earlier this morning that American President Joe Biden has contracted COVID. They say that it's minor symptoms. It just reminds me to ask you about what's happening in the U.S. One of his first orders of business after his inauguration was to essentially kill the Keystone XL pipeline. A lot of people have been taking taking a look at Russia's aggression, the war in Ukraine, and talking about energy security. There's been some optimism. It's got to be veiled, or otherwise it might look a little tacky and opportunistic. But people have suggested that this war could be good news for Canadian energy, for Alberta energy in particular. Do you sense a turning of the tide with regards to Americans' attitudes or even the attitude from the White House when it comes to uh, the development or the expansion of pipeline projects and opening up more of the American market to Canadian oil and gas? I, I don't I don't really see a lot of that. I know I know I know people in in Alberta and in Canada are, are making that argument quite a bit that like with the, the Ukraine war, this is the perfect opportunity to to ramp up energy exports to the US. But I mean the the fundamental challenges are are still the same and they, they haven't really shifted in, in the short term dis, despite all the events in Europe. I mean the the United States is like a wash in, in oil and gas um, due to all the fracking that's been happening there over the last decade. They, they still import a lot of a lot of Canadian oil and gas, but I, I, I don't think they're they're necessarily, you know, clamoring for it. I don't I don't think it's essential. And, you know, Europe is is going to need to replace some of its supplies of, of natural gas due to, you know, Putin's aggression um, and, and him, you know, clawing back some of the imports to Germany and other countries. But I, I think this is this is sort of, you know, a short term problem um, because the European Union is is one of the jurisdictions most committed among any on earth to speeding up the energy transition to renewables and to fighting climate change. And and they're they're putting a lot of political muscle and and money behind that. And so if we think, you know, in in the short term, maybe in the next five to 10 years, Europe's going to need a supply of gas and then it might not need that supply as much anymore. Takes time to get these LNG export projects off the ground. And there's, there's, no, there's no export facility really in Canada that can take advantage of this crisis right now. So may, you know, may, maybe it'll provide a little bit of a bump um, to Canada's energy industry, but I, I don't think it's going to be anything profound. And of course, huge opposition to LNG expansion uh, on Canada's West Coast. Uh, we were talking to journalist Brandy Morin yesterday, her recent reporting out of uh, Wet'suwet'en. People can check out that interview if they missed it. Uh, Jeff, before we let you go, people still have to wait a couple of months to read it, but you've got a brand new book coming out, The Petroleum Papers, Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change. Uh, can you tease it for us? Yeah, I mean, I think this one's going to start a lot of discussions, not only in Alberta, but all over the place. But um, the the main 
argument of the book is that the the companies operating in the Canadian oil sands have known about climate change for for way longer than the public has, you know, even going back to the late 1950s. And I got access to hundreds and hundreds of documents produced by those companies where they talk about climate change internally. And then you can see the evolution over time where the big oil and gas producers over the span of a few decades go from recognizing that climate change is a big um, threat to the planet to recognizing that climate change threatens their business models to creating sophisticated campaigns trying to convince people that climate change isn't real. And then the book takes that up to the present day and explains how we sort of got into the the mess that we're in, in terms of not dealing with the problem effectively and also just being flooded with disinformation. And so I, I see this, this counterpoint thing that you had me on the show for as, as related to that story. We're just, we're just living in a, a chaotic information environment. The seeds for that were planted quite a long time ago. Well, we sure appreciate the work that you do on this, uh, allowing us to have informed discussions people can follow you on twitter at jeff dambicki they can read your work at the tie.ca of course jeff's work also has been featured in new york times uh, rolling stone vice and other outlets uh, former alberta boy now living in new york city thanks for making time for real talk yeah thanks for having me on the show i appreciate it yeah you bet jeff have a great rest of your summer we'll talk again soon uh we'll get him back when that book comes out that's i want to talk to that guy for like blow people's minds six hours yeah <laughs> like, and you know what like i'm, I'm yeah. not sort of like to, you know to blow smoke but like to to call it how it is it, it takes some courage it to be an investigative climate reporter these days when you get an understanding of the mechanisms that play behind the scenes calling them predatory wolves it's ridiculous I mean, you, and you think of who they're speaking to with that and some of the unpredictability around anyway I and things are heating up like the last 10 15 years because literally these people <laughs> you know the energy uh companies they want to make the most money they can all those resources like they're not infinite coal yeah. natural gas oil nuclear like they're gonna run out eventually so you know it would be it's great like a John. last play for them to you know get- it would be great it would be great if the federal government uh in canada w- was maybe able to come up with like a forty thousand dollar interest-free loan for homeowners who wanted to install solar or other energy efficient measures you don't say yeah john uh, they call it uh a step in the right direction for climate sustainability. And our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy Limited are all over this. Seriously, there's no catch. There's no strings attached. It's a $40,000 interest-free loan available to you, a homeowner, if you want to put solar panels up. There's no catch. Now, this is in addition to a $5,000 rebate from the federal government. So the first 5K is on the government. And if you happen to live in our home city, the city of Edmonton, there's another four grand there. So put it this way. It's never been a better time to get solar up there and to take a step forward in going green. You can get your free quote today at kubienergy.ca. Their Tesla certified installers will make sure the job is done right as you make a move to protect the planet. Now, once you've got your solar panels up on the roof, you're going to want to make sure that you're bringing your business to park power. Why? Because in the summer months... Right? When we get those big, beautiful, long days, all that sunshine, June, July, August, your solar power is going to give you more juice than you need. Park Power will buy it back from you, and they're going to pay you up to four times more than the big guys do. I've seen the numbers. 
Park Power is your friendly local utilities provider. You save on administrative costs if you bundle your electricity, natural gas, and internet with them. And the promo code at signup, 2022-RealTalk, knocks $70 off your first bill. They're going to buy you dinner at parkpower.ca. You want to go green? You want to move in the right direction when it comes to your landscaping, when it comes to your outdoor space? Eden Landscaping has been on trend with these pollinator initiatives. It's their urban front yard butterfly approach. You know, a lot of people are sick of the, you know, just the, the, the rolls and rolls and rolls of sod. And they're trying to bring in native grasses and plants that have been in the areas for thousands of years. They want to create an environment where the pollinators, the bees in particular, but other insects can do their work. Eden Landscaping has been bringing outdoor spaces to life and sustaining that life. For more than 20 years, you can check them out at landscapeedmonton.ca. And we haven't talked much about our new studio build. We're really excited about this, but we want to shine a spotlight on one of our partners for that studio build, and that is the team at Urban Timber. Now, check this out. If you're watching on YouTube, we ran a drone through their shop the other day. Their old store on 104th in Edmonton was shut down. It was torn down, in fact, and they're so excited for the grand opening of their brand new showroom. This is the Urban Timber Showroom 2.0. They're building our interview table for the new studio. Diggity damn! Now, this Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., you'll be able to check out their new lineup. Check out their new location. Absolutely beautiful. Now, they're known for reclaimed wood, but also... You know, they're making mid-century modern. They're making contemporary furniture with a story behind it. That's the best part about it. They're going to have summer cocktails. They're going to have mocktails for all their guests. And plus, this Saturday only from 10 to 4, 15% off all selections. That's a big savings. 15% off. The proceeds from dining tables in particular are going to the Alberta Alzheimer's Society. That's this Saturday from 10 to 4. You can learn more at urbantimber.ca. I'm so excited for that new studio table. I mean, these ad reads today. It's Thanks, just John. Like you're telling a story here, brother. Thanks, John. <laughs> I feel like it was teed up for us. It was beautiful. As we head into this next section, uh, my pal, <laughs> this guy, has had an unbelievable experience. He's back on North American soil. He's been home for like hours. That's it. And now he's here on Real Talk. Craig Spicer is the superintendent at the Legends Golf Club. He's been there for more than a decade. He's been in the golf industry for more than 30 years, and he just worked the British Open at the historic old course at St. Andrews here to tell us all about it. Spicer, my man, how are you doing? It's good to see your face again. Thanks for having me. So you were just, you were just, I mean, you just flew back from Edinburgh last night, basically. You were in Scotland for the, for at least the past week or so. You got to play some golf, but more importantly, you got to work the British Open. A dream come true, I would imagine, for a golf fanatic like yourself. Yeah, totally, totally. Like, um, we got into it. Ron Lyons, one of the owners of the course, stopped in the shop one day and said, yeah, we're a bunch of us going to the, the Open this year. Uh, it'd be fun. I'm like, wow. Great trip, 150th St. Andrews. It'd be amazing. He goes, yeah, maybe we'll sneak you on the plane. And then he leaves. So I'm like, well, that might be fun. Yeah. So I tell my wife, I might be going to St. Andrews. She's like, yeah, right. Tell my assistant the next morning, Marcel goes, dude, you're going. He's taking you. So then I find out a couple of days later, yeah, it, I'm going. So not long after that, I, I emailed Sandy Reed, who is the grounds supervisor of the entire course 
Uh, he does, they have seven courses in, at the Lynx Trust. And uh, he emails me back and said, because they have seven courses, that they, they don't do full uh, uh, volunteers, but he invited me to take part one night with the crew. And I was reading the email and almost looking at my wife and I'm almost like, wow, this is like, I'm in tears. Just, this is going to be the coolest experience ever. And uh, yeah, that's how it got started. And so one of the days when, 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 once we got there, I walk over to the maintenance building and introduce myself and ask what time I should come over. And cause Sandy's so busy, even when I tried to email him back and forth, once I got there, he, you know, he's got, he's got things going everywhere. So they just said, show up on Friday night, about six o'clock. And so that's what I did. And Friday, Friday night went out and yeah, there I am on the bridge. Yeah. And I mean, most people are going to be listening to this on the podcast, but I, but people have to check this out on YouTube because we're showing a whole bunch of photos. I want to be clear. The photos that we're showing here are yours. These are, these aren't sort of stock photos from, from the British open. These are photos that you took on your phone while you were there and, and, yeah. and you're with, you're within like a sand wedge to, to, Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy and, and Cam Smith, who obviously uh, had an unbelievable performance on the yeah, Sunday. There, yeah, there's Rory. That was the on so on Monday they did a Champions Tournament. And they played four holes. So yeah, Tiger and Rory, uh, Faldo, yeah, that, all the champions, John Daly, and yeah, I got so that's that's that that picture there of Tiger. He um, that's his last tee shot on eighteen. So I was up on I was up there and, and got that one. Um, as they're saying, probably his final tee shot at St Andrews as a, as a professional golfer, at least in the British Open. It could very well be, yeah. So you know, I go no, ahead. Sorry, yeah. buddy. I was just going to say for for people that are listening to this, uh, I mean, for for the golfers, uh, sandbaggers, the duffers, and everybody else, n nobody is going to ask. Well, what's so special about St Andrews? Everybody knows. Uh, but for people that, are, that would be maybe casual observers of the game or people that know nothing about golf, what's so special about not just being at St. Andrews, but for a, a professional like yourself, Craig, you're a, you're a superintendent at a golf course, to be able to to join the grounds crew there and to work a British Open at the old course at St. Andrews. Can you put it into perspective for us of why that is so special? Well, it, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it was 150 years of just the tournament itself. Uh, walking on the Swillican Bridge, the bridge alone is 650 years old or even older. Like, it predates everything. So just uh, just, just the history. How many champions have walked up that, that fairway? When I walked up 18, some of the guys kind of walked behind me, and I it was like I was walking up on my own, and I'm looking at the, you know, the stands, and I'm looking at, the, the the RNA clubhouse and all the, you know, Tom Morris's shop and, you know, a little tear in my eye and thinking this is just the, 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 the coolest experience I've had. You know, the, I worked the Ryder Cup in September and that was an amazing experience. Um, but there was just something about the, this, the history of, of the place. And yeah, I was... Yeah, it was amazing. Everybody talks when they talk about the British Open. Everybody talks about the bunkers. It's typically uh, a tough tournament, regardless of whatever course it's at. But uh, but from a from a groundskeeping standpoint, what did they have you doing specifically, and and what did you note about the course 
itself. I mean, there's there's trends in golf courses these days, right? A course that was built five years ago or 10 years ago or 30 years ago, maybe 100 years ago. We talked about the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge course a while ago and Stanley Thompson's stamp on that course. There's a lot of personality that shows through in course designs. Uh, can you talk to us about what they had you doing, what you noted about the course itself? What were some of the cool insights that you have as a 30-year professional? I, I feel divots. And that's, and I was more than happy to do it. I'm walking around with a half, you know, two pound bucket and sand seed and just filling the divots. Yeah. And, uh, the bunkers are deep. Uh, if you're in there and you're up against one of the, the, the sod walls, you're coming out sideways or you're coming out backwards there. Yeah. There's 17. And when I stood in it, it's, I can't, you can't see the green. It's, it's deep. That's wild. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah. That would take me 10 shots to get out of there. Yeah, and the the, the the thing that amazed me most is getting to walk on the greens is how much undulation and how big those slopes are and where those pins are tucked. And you realize how good these guys really are when you see them play and you see them those, those, where those pins are and the creativity of that, what goes into playing a course like that because it's not you can play it so many different ways. You can play it down. You can putt it from 100 yards away. When Poulter made that putt on, I think it was Thursday, 160-foot putt, I was walking past it. I heard the roar and turned around, and I could see Poulter with this, this stunned look on his face. I'm like, well, that was pretty cool. And when um, I think it was Hideki, when he made, when he holed out from the bunker on 17, I was sitting in the stands. I took a picture of him just when he was in the bunker after he hit his first shot that he left it in. And then he hit a second shot and hold it out. And all I can think of, ah, oh, I should have been videoing that. <laughs> you know, it was like, holy crap, the, the roar. And the roar that you heard there was worth everything. Oh, yeah. man. On your on your all-time highlights uh, in your life of golf, like is this top three? Is this top five? How does it stack up? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's top one too. It's top one too. Around, I know, love it. Rider, right, the Ryder Cup was you know he, yeah that Ryder Cup. I got the most fairways for the Ryder Cup, so that was that was pretty awesome too. And I got to you know that was seven days of of working every morning, two shifts a day. Uh, you know these guys at that you know they're they're there at three in the morning, you know, and they do a full morning and then they go and they sleep or whatever, and then they come back at seven until ten thirty. I think we worked till ten thirty that night on Friday. If you watch professionals at work, uh, if you, like a like a great defense lawyer, or a great public affairs consultant, or a great chef or bartender, they they can put their stamp on. They can make something that may seem rather mundane or benign or ordinary. Uh, special when you're mowing fairways at the Ryder cup, is there a way that you can put a stamp? Is there a way that the professional golfers that have played all over the world at the most magnificent courses will say who mowed this fairway? Is there a way to put a stamp on it? Can you, can you spot excellence in things like turf care fairways, the way the second cut is mowed, the way that sand traps are maintained? It's a precision. It's, it's precise. You know, you have so many people behind the scenes that, that from the real techs and the turf techs getting the equipment ready from the superintendent, just planning all this staff to go out there. So the, the first morning we were mowing, there was no dew on the ground. It's 4.30 in the morning. It's completely dark. We have the lights on our mowers and I'm second and I'm right behind the girl who's been there for years. And all of a sudden she pulls off. There was something wrong with her machine. 
well, now I'm, now I'm first and I got to go back. And I couldn't see, I couldn't see anything, but it's just uh, instinct and experience took over and off I went. I think I mowed the fairway probably four times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I didn't want to screw anything up. Yeah. You, you know, don't, was, you don't want the masking it in the other direction. Like who the hell mowed this fairway? You don't want yeah. that. Do you spice? No, no you, don't you don't want, want that. that. Hey, you let's talk about, that. let's talk about Cam Smith for a second. He's four back heading into Sunday, which is, uh, I mean, certainly not an unprecedented comeback, but when you've got Rory McIlroy, um, obviously looks poised to, to claim that British open to, to, to claim that claret jug. And, and then Smith just goes on a heater and yep. gave people a lot to cheer about. And uh, it was, I mean, it's just, just this professional golfer, this Aussie people that have followed his career, people that don't know who I'm talking about. He's got a sweet Mo and a great mullet and he, yep. and he lives down in Florida and he loves like deep sea fishing. And it seems like he doesn't even really care about golf. It seems like he'd rather just fish all the time. He's what we would refer to as a total beauty. And yep. uh, so he wins the claret jug and uh, I want to show two back-to-back videos. First, here's what he had to say on the green at 18. I, I, I'm lost for words. Well, perhaps you can tell us how you're going to celebrate tonight with the claret jug. <laughs> I'm definitely going to find out how many beers fit in this thing, that's for sure. And so, of many, course, many uh, congratulations. you know, the crowd loves that. He's going to find out how many beers can fit into the Claret Jug. And then it turns out, uh, Craig, that he is a man of his word, uh, because this just a few moments later, as you can see. Here it is. <laughs> uh, for those listening on the podcast, he is absolutely crushing a jug full of beers. It turns out that the answer is two. The British Open, <laughs> you can hold two full beers. Just a, a quick comment on Cam Smith and what he accomplished at the Open. Well, I had a great spot on Sunday. I walked in my favorite spot because I went everywhere. I, I sat in all the bleachers and found a, my favorite spot was seven or, or 11 tee boxes. And seven, you can see, you could see them hit their tee shots, watch them hit into the green. You could watch them hit eight, hit onto eight, watch them tee off nine, hit them onto nine green watch them tee off 10 into the green. And then because all they're all double greens. So seven shared with 11. So then as they're hitting to the par three, 11, I'm watching that. And then I could watch if I turned, I could see him hit off 12. So I saw Cam's birdies. I was there and, and watch, I sat there all day and yeah. And then, and then I got out and walked down and I got that picture on 15. There he is, champion golfer of the year. You say, what a great final round. People can check out all your photos uh, at Turf Care Craig. That's your Twitter handle. Uh, I want to give a big shout out uh, for people that are watching on YouTube. You're sitting there in your superintendent's office at Legends uh, Golf Club. We can see behind you the Masters flag, which is pretty sweet. Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, your Cali Crush sweater. Uh, of course, yeah. you and I have proudly skated together for several years at the Alzheimer's Pro-Am for Team Cali Crush. Uh, very great. much. Uh, and you've done a ton of fundraising and you've helped me do some fundraising too by giving us some golf course availability to raise some money as well for that great cause as well for Alzheimer's um, thanks for making time for us welcome home you All must right. be running on fumes right now pal are you experiencing a bit of jet lag or no lots of coffee lots of coffee <laughs> out of boy out of boy how's how's legends looking this year how's the course looking fantastic love it buddy fantastic my assistant Marcel and the team while I was gone did an incredible job and I can't thank them and that's uh, you know I can't thank Ron and Edwin the owners of the legends for for bringing me and letting me experience that because like i say it was a dream come true well yeah, totally. if there's yeah. ever another spot on the plane open you just let me know pal i'm always available All on right. short notice 
All right. That's <laughs> Craig Spicer. Thanks, buddy. We'll see you again soon. He's the superintendent at Legends Golf Club. How cool is that? It's amazing. What would be the equivalent for you as a, you're like you're a creative professional? Obviously, you're a DJ. You've you've been a radio host. You've been. What would be the equivalent for you, like for him to walk the fairways at St Andrews, the birthplace of golf, to walk over the 650 year old bridge? What would, for you in your career? What would it be? I don't know about that, but if if we want to relate it directly to what he's talking about, his boss took him to something cool. <laughs> oh, jeez. So maybe if my boss took me to say, I don't know. I did set myself up for that, <laughs> and it's your birthday today. Damn it! The next time, uh, you know, take me to some political convention. Take me, take me to the floor of something that I know you can get me on that I wouldn't. You know, you want to do that? I don't know if you want yeah, to. Go I want to experience things yeah. just like this guy does. You know, maybe we could, maybe we could go to some big. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I want to see. Think, I'm, I'm trying teeth. to think of what that would be for me. <laughs> I think it. I think it might be like uh, to be able to to be able to watch like a nightly newscast happen in mm. real time in the studio you know from new york city or washington dc or but something you've, like you've that on a TV. big night yeah i've done tv but i'm talking like so as you know so as uh you know craig's done a lot of work in golf you can say ah oh, you've you, you you filled in divots before but not at st andrews not at the 150th yeah. british open people are listening right now they're like these guys are lame <laughs> <laughs> our I'm trying dream, to think. I our dreams for, are to go to a well, political convention. But I would, no, but I would love to see what, what people would say. Happen. Like, what would be what would be folks equivalent to what he of what Spicer just did? Like in your career, what would be the equivalent? I was talking to you know actually a, a uh, I don't know if I want to bring her into this. She's gonna be like, why are you mentioning me? But the, our company, our parent company, Relay, mm. the general manager of Relay, Katie Cook Chivers, her grandfather pioneered a neurological surgical technique that's actually named after him. Wow. He identified a certain condition that required a certain type of surgery. And as a neurosurgeon, as an expert, that method was now named. It's the Rasmussen method, I believe they call it. <laughs> and he pioneered that. I would think like that would be something like as a, you, you know, you know, I mean, you got your average run of the mill neurologist or neurosurgeon, you know, just your run of the mill <laughs> brain surgeon. But then you've got the one that elevates themselves and has that career experience where they, yeah. they pioneer something like uh, I, I can think of anyone could have applications in their own for a chef. Like I keep mentioning chefs. I, I think in another life, I would love to be a chef. I just have so much respect for what they do 100%. Um, to work with like one of the world's great chefs or to cook for, you know, Anthony Bourdain. May he rest in peace or something like that. You know, what would what would be the ultimate career highlight for you? Maybe we'll put a tweet out and ask people. I think that would be kind of a cool thing to focus on. We don't want to always be talking news and politics and heavy stuff. Sometimes we just want to celebrate the cool. <laughs> this and is, this was this sure is, an example of that, wasn't it? But this is why my wife says I'm boring. Like, because I can never answer. She's like, what are your, your ultimate dreams? Like yesterday. She's like, what do you want for your birthday? It will do anything. And I'm like, yeah. I don't know, a, a nice a nice nap in the afternoon when I get home? Well, and then I got, and then I knew that I think maybe she was struggling a little bit because I went behind your back and messaged her. What? And I said, I'm looking for something special to get for John for his birthday. And she didn't know. Well, she wrote back and she, all she said was, there's that's no way. She said, that's really kind of you. He's very hard to shop for. Because I don't know. Like, I, I just don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm the same. Carrie's like, what do you want to do for dinner? I'm like, what do you want to do for dinner? She's like, for Pete's sake, will you give me an answer? Give me an answer. Hey, if you're looking for an answer to your family's challenge right now, either you're trying to save money on gas, on your fuel costs, you can't afford $1,000 a month to run your vehicle, maybe looking for something more fuel efficient, maybe something electric, or maybe you've got a holiday trailer either behind your house right now or you want to get one, but what are you going to pull it with? 
you're looking for solutions, they've got them at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. I trust the teams there. We were customers at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge long before we partnered with them here on Real Talk. That's right, our very first Grand Cherokee was purchased at Sherwood Dodge 12 years ago, and we've been driving Jeeps ever since. Absolutely love them. That means we have the service relationship with their teams too. We're treated top shelf every time we go there, and I guarantee you'll have the same experience. You can find them online, shop from the comfort of your own home, or go visit the dealership themselves. You can find the links under the Sponsors tab on our website at ryanjesperson.com. Also, a big shout-out to our friends at Local Environmental. They're operating across Alberta and Saskatchewan, urban and rural service. If you're a rural customer, you can, you're not going to pay for more than what you need. If you need them there daily, you need them there weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever, they want to find a solution that works for you. They want you to find what you're looking for when it comes to recycling and garbage management, front load or roll off bins for maybe a big uh, renovation project you're doing. Maybe you're getting a new roof on your house. You need somewhere for all that debris. You need it cleaned up pronto. You don't want to get the neighbors all ticked off. Or maybe you're throwing a big festival. You need fencing and portable toilets, water hauling to fill up your rural pool like my cousin Carson. Whatever it is, check out localenvironmental.ca. Don't forget, Trash Talk is tomorrow. We've got some great submissions. Uh, We're going to get to Cheryl's email about my take on mosquito spraying. We're going to get to FX's email about my Danielle Smith interview. We're going to get to Kathy's email about this freedom convoy but we've got room for one more talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send that in trash talk is presented proudly by local environmental coming up on tomorrow's show we've been telling you about this all week if you subscribe to our real talk sunday message it's a free email that lands in your inbox late sunday night it sets the table for the week you know that we have a friday real talk round table coming up focusing on that papal apology that's right pope francis is coming to canada he's going to visit it call it quebec and alberta we talked to grand chiefs and chiefs about it this week journalist brandy morin but the round table will take it on and get personal plus sapria again coming up on tomorrow's real talk Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook Shivers. Account coordinator, Lawrence Derlego. Human resources, Lena Shepard. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola. Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is reported in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.